Amen. All right, well, we're there in Matthew 25. And if you remember last week, we spent a couple of weeks in Matthew 24. And you need to understand that Matthew 25 is in the context of Matthew 24. The, the chapter divisions and the verse divisions were uh, put there for ease of study and for you to be able to find passages quickly. But just because there's a chapter division doesn't mean that there's necessarily a division in what's being said. And uh, chapter 25 is just kind of continuing the idea of chapter 24. If you remember, Matthew 24 is all about the coming of Christ and uh, the, the, the rapture and the tribulation, all those things. Matthew 25 is the Lord Jesus Christ going through three parables, teaching about being ready for that coming of Christ. And tonight we're going to go through the first two parables and uh, just give you some thoughts on that and, and hopefully it won't be too long. Uh, if you look at the first parable in, in verse 1, uh, the first parable serves as a warning to be ready for unbelievers, as a warning to be ready for unbelievers. And I want to explain to you what this parable means and represents because this is a parable that has a lot of controversy with it. A lot of people think it means a lot of different things. And I want to give you uh, my thoughts uh, as to what I believe the parable is. And you can have your own thoughts, of course. If you look at verse 1, the Bible says, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Now, again, some people are going to tell you this is the nation of Israel. They're going to tell you all sorts. People like to take this passage and prove and try to prove from it that you can lose your salvation. But I want you to understand uh, what this represents. The first thing is, we have these virgins. What do these virgins represent? Now keep your finger there in Matthew 25. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter number 11 and look at verse number 2. When you get to 2 Corinthians, keep your bulletin there or an insert, you know, a, a, a ribbon or something there because we're going to be going back to 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians a few times tonight as we study this uh, passage. 2 Corinthians chapter number 11 and look at verse number 2. 2 Corinthians chapter number 11 and verse number two. So you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, first and second Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter number 11 and verse two. The Bible says, for I am jealous over you. This is the apostle Paul speaking to believers at the church at Corinth. He says, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you. Now notice, the present you there, he's talking to believers at Corinth, but he says that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Do you see that? So here we see the Apostle Paul talking about believers as these people that are going to be presented to Christ, and he refers to them as virgins. Now, if you go back to Matthew 25 and verse 1, we have these ten virgins, and the virgins represent those who would like to be presented to Christ. Now, they're not all necessarily chaste virgins. They're not all necessarily saved, and, and I'll prove that to you in a second. But the virgins represent individuals that would like to be presented to Christ. Now notice uh, verse 1 again. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Who's the bridegroom? Well, the bridegroom, or in our terminology, we would just use the word groom, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just prove it to you. It's Verity Baptist Church. We like to prove everything from the Bible. Go to Matthew chapter number 9. We, we were in Matthew 9 weeks and weeks and weeks ago, uh, but 
maybe you'll remember this, Matthew chapter 9, if you just go a few chapters uh, forward in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9, and look at verse number 14. Now, I, I could have showed you this from a lot of different passages. I just chose Matthew 9. You can study this out. Every time you learn about, you, you hear about the bridegroom in the New Testament, specifically the Gospels, but, but in the New Testament in general, it's always Jesus Christ. But notice, in Matthew chapter 9, you have the disciples of John. Remember the disciples of John the Baptist? They're coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to read the whole thing for, in its context. You can study it out on your own if you'd like. But in Matthew 9, 14, the Bible says, then came to him. Now the him there is Jesus, all right? Then came to him the disciples of John saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast oft or fast often? Why do we why are we fasting often but thy disciples? Whose disciples? The disciples of Jesus. Thy disciples fast not. So the disciples of John, they're saying, Why do we fast? Why do the Pharisees fast? But your disciples, Jesus, they, they don't fast. Now notice the, the response of Christ, verse 15. And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So Jesus says, look, as long as I'm with them, and he uses this picture of a wedding. He says, as long as the groom is, <clears throat> at the bride, is in the party, it's at the bride chamber, why would they fast as long as he is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. And that day is here. Jesus right now is not with us. We're waiting for the bridegroom to return and take his virgin wife. But he says, look, as long as I'm with them, they don't have to fast. But one day the bridegroom is going to be gone, and then they should fast. So there we see Jesus referring to himself as the bridegroom. And you can find that all throughout Scripture if you'd like to study that phrase out, bridegroom. So here's what I want you to understand. The virgins are those who would like to be presented to the bridegroom who's the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2 of Matthew 25, verse number 2. I want you to see something about these virgins. And five of them were wise. Remember that phrase, uh, uh, th these words, wise. Now the wise are the actual believers. And five were foolish. <clears throat> I want you to remember th that there, there's five that are foolish. The foolish, I believe, are false believers. Would be the tares among the wheat. Five were wise and five were foolish. Did you keep your place in 2 Corinthians? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, just real quickly. And like I said, just keep, keep something there in 1 2 Corinthians because we're going to be going back and forth to it. But look at 1 Corinthians chapter number 4. The wise represents those who are actual believers. The foolish represents those who are false believers. They look like believers, but they're not actually saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verse 10. Let's uh, run this cross-reference. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10. Notice what Paul says again to the church at Corinth. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye, talking to the believers at Corinth, notice, ye are wise in Christ. You see that? So what makes you and I wise? We are wise if we are in Christ, if we are saved. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. So there we see that you're wise if you're in Christ. And I'm going to... I'll prove to you that the wise are saved and the foolish are not saved even further later on. But just kind of keep that on the, in the back of your mind. Because you've got to understand what, what, you know, who all the players are, what this, uh, what this parable represents. So you can understand the parable. Go back to Matthew 25. Look at verse 3. Matthew 25, verse 3. So we have the virgins who represent those who want to be presented to Christ. Five are wise. I believe they are 
actual believers, five are foolish. Those are false believers. you got the bridegroom who is uh, a representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Matthew 25. Look at verse 3. Matthew 25, 3. Then they that were foolish took their lamps and took, notice, no oil. Now, did they ever have oil? No. They took no oil. They had lamps, but no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps while the bridegroom tarried. They all slumbered and slept. Now, go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. In the Old Testament, I know we're running a lot of references, but we kind of have to just for you to see it. 1 Samuel chapter 16 in the Old Testament, you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. All right, can you remember that? Go to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Look at verse 13. And here's what I'm just saying. And I'll have time to develop this so you can, again, just study this out on your own. In the Bible, oil is often used to represent the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, oil is often used to represent the oil spirit. Let me just give you one example of that. 1 Samuel 16 and verse number 13. Do you remember when King David, he was just a, a lad at this time, was going to be anointed king by Samuel, 1 Samuel 16 and verse 13, the Bible says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil, notice, oil, and anointed him, talking about David, in the midst of the brethren. Notice, and as soon as the oil was poured on David, the Bible says, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So there we see that when the oil came upon David, the Spirit of the Lord also came upon David as a picture representing that uh, oil and the Holy Spirit. The Bible talks, uh, tells us in James that we are to anoint those that are sick with oil. Why? Because there's something special about the oil? No, the oil just represents the Holy Spirit. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with taking actual physical oil and anointing somebody with it uh, and to pray over them, but what we're praying, we're not, it's not magical oil. We're just praying that the Holy Spirit, who's represented by that oil, would do a work in their, in their lives and heal them. So you've got the oil, which represents the Holy Spirit, and uh, the five foolish virgins appeared and I want you to understand this. Go back to Matthew 25. The five foolish virgins appeared to be prepared for the bridegroom because they had their lamps, but they really were not prepared because they took no oil with them. Do you understand that? They, they never had the oil. They didn't take it with them. Now, if you look at verse 6 of Matthew 25, the Bible says, And at midnight there was a cry. Now, you've got to understand this about the word cry in our King James Bible. The word cry in our Bible is not the same word that you and I use uh, cry today. Today, when you talk about, oh, that baby's crying, you're talking about like they're, they have tears coming out and they're, you know, oh, whatever. The Bible does not use the word cry in that way. The, the Bible word for what you and I use cry is weep. When the Bible, when the Archangel's Bible uses the word weep, it's referring to tears coming out and someone modern day crying, okay? In the Bible, that word cry, and even today, it still means that, but just uh, not used as commonly. The word cry just means to shout. Remember, uh, uh, Isaiah says, cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet. The idea is to shout. The idea is to, to, to raise your voice. And the Bible says here, and at midnight there was a cry. Not, not someone crying, but, you know, shouting. There was a cry made. Behold, the bridegroom, make note of these words, of this word, cometh. 
Go ye out to meet him. So what does this represent? The rapture. The coming of the Lord. Let's run a few cross-references just to prove it to you. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Very well-known passage. We've looked at it a lot recently. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, you know, find all those T-books. Remember 1 2 Thessalonians, 1 2 Timothy, Titus. You find the T-books, you'll be close to it towards the end of the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Look at verse 15. While you, while you look for that, let me just uh, tell you this. You don't have to turn there. But in Revelation chapter 14, for those of you that are taking notes, you can write this down. Revelation 14 Verses 14 through 18 gives us a picture of the rapture in the book of Revelation. And it talks about the Son of Man sitting on a white cloud coming to reap the earth. And the Bible says that when he does that, one of the angels cried with a loud cry. Okay, so you can uh, write that down for your notes if you'd like. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 15. Notice what the Bible says. 1 Thessalonians 4.15 For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto, notice, the coming of the bridegroom. Okay, the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a cry. All right, with a shout. Do you see that? With the voice of the archangel, when the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So in Matthew 25, 6, when we have a cry, we have a shout, and we have the bridegroom, and he's coming or cometh, it's talking about the rapture. Go back to Matthew 25, all right? So does everybody understand all the different uh, things, what they represent, all the different players? We have the virgins. These are individuals waiting for the bridegroom. They are prepared to meet the bridegroom. Five are wise. What makes them wise? They have the oil. Five are foolish. They look prepared. They look ready, but they're not ready to meet the bridegroom because they don't have the oil. What's the oil represent? The Holy Spirit. The bridegroom is Christ. Go back to uh, Matthew 25. So what, what does this all mean? Let's put it all together. The point of this parable is pretty simple. Simple. Notice verse 7. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamp. Because remember, verse 6, there was at the midnight, uh, and at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. Verse 8. Notice, and the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. Now notice, they said their lamps are gone out. Like they're saying, like, we had oil, but we ran out. Can we have some of your oil? But we were already told they never had oil. They showed up with no oil. They said, give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answer saying, not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Here's, here's what this parable means. because People like to take it real deep and try to mess it all up. And look, it's, it's pretty simple. If you're not saved, you need to get ready for the coming of Christ. If we're not ready, listen. If we're not ready, no one can help you. If you don't have the oil, I can't give you of my oil. Do you understand that? I can't give you of my salvation. People get this idea. Well, you know, I'm not, you know, every time we go out so many, somebody says, well, I've got a uh, uncle who's a Baptist preacher 
And like, you know, here's the question. Do you know for sure if you die today, you go to heaven? Well, I have an uncle that's a Baptist preacher. It's like, I didn't ask you about your uncle that's a Baptist preacher. I said, do you know if you die today, well, you, well, you don't understand. My mom's pretty godly. Well, you don't understand. My grandpa, he used to, look, you got to understand this. People think, oh, because my family's saved that somehow that's going to get me into heaven. If you don't have oil, no one can get, no one can help you. If you're not ready, no one can help you. No one else can give us of their oil. Now, now here's what's interesting, okay? Look at verse 11. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying... Now, notice, I want you to make note. uh, Keep your finger there in Matthew 25 and and go to Matthew chapter 7. And we're going to look at these back and forth. Find Matthew 7, but but look at Matthew 25. Because I want you to to notice uh, the similarities between these two passages. Matthew 25 and verse number 11. Matthew 25 and verse 11. Let me prove to you that these foolish virgins are false believers. They're not actually saved. They think they're saved. They think they're ready. They th- they're looking. They're saying, hey, I want to see the bridegroom. But they're not ready to meet that bridegroom. They don't even understand it. Matthew 25, look at verse 11. Look what it says. And afterward came also other virgins. Because remember, the wise virgins went into the wedding already. They're in with the bridegroom. But here come the five foolish, uh, the, the five foolish virgins. And afterward came also the virgins saying, I want you to notice what they said. Lord, Lord. Open to us. Notice what they said. Lord, Lord. Go to Matthew chapter 7. Look at verse 21. Matthew 7, verse 21. Notice what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, now notice what they're saying. Have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Now here's how we know these people aren't saved, because you know what they're trusting? Their works. And you know what? There's a whole lot of religious people out there. There's a whole lot of people out there who go to Bible studies, who go to church, who have a Bible, who say they're religious, who they say, I got a lamp, I'm ready, but they're not saved, and they don't have the Holy Spirit, and they don't understand. And, because, and here's why. Because they, they're, they're trusting in their works. Listen to me. Every person who says, I can lose my salvation based on how I live my life, you are trusting your works, and I don't care what church you go to, I don't care how modestly you dress, I don't care what you, you say, well, I know everything about it. Look, if you are trusting in your works to get you to heaven, you're going to find yourself one day with a lamp with no oil. And you're going to be calling out and saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils? And in thy name do many wonderful works? And notice what he says. Now notice what he says. Verse 23. Then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Now listen, it's not, because people try to say, oh, you, they're losing their salvation. He didn't say, I used to know you, and then I, you know, unfriended you on Facebook. That's not what he says. He says, I never knew you. He said, you, you never had a relationship with me. You never, you never believed on me. You, there was never, there was no connection between you and me. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now notice what he says to the virgins. Go back to Matthew 25. Look at verse 12. Notice what he says to the virgins. But he answered and said, Matthew 25, verse 12. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, notice what he says, I know you not. Isn't that the exact same thing? In both passages, Lord, Lord, and in both passages, I never knew you. I know you not. You looked ready. 
You looked religious. You looked prepared. But you didn't have the oil. You didn't have what you needed. You're trusting in your works. And he says, I, I don't know who you are. Now, now go back to Matthew 7. And here's what's interesting about this whole thing. Remember, you got five wives. Five wives, good night. Five virgins. Five wise and five foolish. The wise had the oil. The foolish didn't. And there's this correlation, Matthew 25, 11, They say, Lord, Lord. Matthew 7, 21 and 22, they say, Lord, Lord. Matthew 25, 12 and 13, he says, I know you not. Matthew 7, 23, he says, I never knew you. Go back to Matthew uh, chapter 7, look at verse 24. Matthew 7, verse 24. It's very interesting as you study the Bible. This, this book was not written by man. Man is not smart enough to write this book. Because notice what, notice what he says in Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, now what did he just get done talking about in verses 21 through 23? He's talking about people saying, Lord, Lord, uh, uh, you know, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in the name cast out devils, the name done many wonderful works. Verse 12, he says, depart from me. But he answered and said, verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor, I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong verse. Verse 23, and then I will profess unto them, Matthew 7, 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now notice verse 24. 24 is in the context of that. Therefore, for that reason. Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them. Now here's what the context. They heard it, but they're applying it. They're doing it. I will liken him unto a, make note of this word, wise man. You see that? Remember our wise virgins, which built his house upon a rock? Who's that rock? Jesus Christ. And the rain descended, and the floods came, the wind blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, they hear it, but they won't do it, shall be likened unto a foolish man. Remember our foolish virgins? Which built his house upon the sand. That's your words. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. You know who is the hardest person to preach the gospel to? You say, oh, when you knock on our door and some big, hairy guy with all these tattoos comes out and, you know, what do you want? Hey, when those guys come out, I'm like, praise the Lord. Those guys aren't hard to get saved. You know who's hard to get saved? The person who thinks, I'm pretty religious, I'm pretty good, I think I'm all right. Well, you know I mean, you got to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, no, 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 you don't understand, my grandpa. <laughs> Well, you don't know. I mean, my, my wife, she goes to church, and I'm a pretty good person, and you know, I'm kind of religious, and yeah, you can lose it, but those are the people that are going to end up being surprised at the day when the bridegroom comes because they look prepared, but they don't have the oil. So what do we learn in this first parable? We, it's a warning to unbelievers. It's a warning to religious people. Let me just warn, you say, Pastor Jimenez, we're here on a Wednesday night at Verity Baptist Church. Everybody in this room must be saved. Do you believe that? Listen to me, if you're here, if you're here right now and you think, I'm going to get to heaven because I'm a pretty good person or because I live a good life or because of, if, if your answer to that question is anything that you do, I repented of my sins, I got baptized, I did this, I took communion, whatever it is, you're trusting in your works, you don't have the oil, you're going to be surprised. You better just get that oil and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first parable is a warning to unbelievers. Let's look at the second parable. The second parable is a warning to believers, a warning to be ready. Now the first parable was teaching the unbelievers to be ready for the coming of Christ. What do you think the second parable is teaching believers? It's teaching us to be ready for what? The coming of Christ. Notice what, what it says, Matthew 25, verse 14. 
For the kingdom of heaven is as a man. Let's go through it again. What does this parable represent? Who's that man? That's Jesus. Traveling into a far country. What's that far country? Heaven. Remember, Jesus ascended up to heaven. He's not with us right now. The kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants. Who are the servants? Believers. That's you and I. Because we're supposed to be serving him. And delivered unto them his goods. Now here's what I want you to say about the goods. Okay? The goods, later on in the passage, we're told their talents. In verse 28, it says, uh, look, look, skip down to verse 28 just real quickly. But he that had received the one went and digged it in the earth and hid his Lord's money. Okay? So what is a talent? It's money. What, what is that money? It's his goods. And here's what you understand. In the parable, it could definitely be talking about money. That, that's an okay application. But I don't believe it's just referring to money. I, I believe those goods are referring to resources, such as time, money, abilities, anything that God has given you, any resources that you have in life. Here's the parable. There's a man, Jesus, who's traveling to a far country, heaven, and he left some resources, some goods, with his servants. Notice verse 15. And unto the one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To every man, according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. I want you to understand this. Not every believer gets the same resources. Do you see that? Some got five, some got two, some got one. You get what you are able to handle. Notice what it says. And unto the one, verse 15, and unto the one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability. And straightway took his journey. Not every believer gets the same amount of resources in their lives. Not every believer gets the same amount of things to work with. But here's what every believer does get. You get something. Everybody gets something. Now look, you may be a five-talent guy. You may be a five-talent gal. You may be a two-talent guy or a one-talent guy. I I don't know what you are, but I know this. You've got something. You've got a resource. There is something that God has given you, and He expects you to do something with it. And, And don't get this idea, because it's easy for those of us who like to pretend we're humble. And really, we're just using it as an excuse to do nothing. It's easy for us to say, well, God hasn't given me anything. And I don't have it. Look, here's what, I, here's what I know about you. God has given you something that he expects you to use. God has given you a talent. It may not be much, but he's given you something. You know, it's easy to look at people. I look at people in the Bible like the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter. I look at, I look at you know, these heroes of the past, men like Curtis Hudson, you know, uh, uh, Jack Hiles. I, I, even guys today, I look at people like Pastor Anderson and Brother Dave Bersons, you know, and uh, Brother Donnie Romero, and, and they've got talent and they've got things. They, I mean, those guys can think. They're smart. And I'm like, I look at them and I think to myself, good night. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't have some of the abilities they have. But you know what? I have something. And I may not be able to give to God what someone like them can give to God, but I can give to God as much of myself as they can give to God. You understand that? Well, I don't have the ability. To, okay, you may not have the ability that Paul had, but you can give of yourself as much as Paul gave of himself. You say, well, I only have one talent. Then give your talent. And if you've got five talents, then give your five talents. And to the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. Look at verse 16. 
Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same, and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. Look at verse 18. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of that servant cometh. What's, we know what's the coming of the Lord. That's the rapture, right? And reckoneth. That word reckon means to establish by counting or calculating. You ever heard somebody say, the day of reckoning is coming. It's talking about a judgment day when God is going to look at his accounts and reckoneth with them. And you, you got to understand, let's, let's run a few cross-references. Go to, go to Romans chapter 14. Just real quickly, I want you to see one verse in Romans. We'll go to 2 Corinthians. Romans chapter 14. Look at verse number 10. You got to understand this. There is a day of reckoning coming for every believer. There is a day of judgment coming for every believer. You say, well, I thought when we got saved, I was never going to be judged for my sins, and I never had to stand before God uh, for my sins. You are absolutely right. You will never answer to God for your sins if you are saved. The Bible says that the unbelievers will stand in what's known as the, ju- uh, as the great white throne judgment. I've preached on that before, and I'm not going to deal with it tonight. But at the great white throne, unbelievers will be judged, and they will be found wanting, and they will be sent to the lake of fire and hell. Believers will stand before God at another judgment. Romans chapter 14, look at verse 10. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Remember a few weeks ago we were talking about how to properly judge? Or why dost thou set at not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. See, there's a judgment called, not the great white throne, but there's a judgment coming called the judgment seat of Christ. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You're there in Romans. The next book is 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Should have kept your finger or something in 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians anyway. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse number 10. I got it. We got to finish this in like 10, 15 minutes, all right? So look at, we're almost done actually. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Okay, maybe we're not almost done, but we can do it in like 10 minutes. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 10, all right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, look at what the Bible says. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things, look, done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now, you got, don't, don't misunderstand those, those words there, good or bad. Good or bad is not talking about sin. If God was talking about sin, he would have used the word sin. If you study that, those terms out in Scripture, good or bad. You ever heard of milk going bad? <laughs> you don't, you, you, when your milk went bad, you don't look at that milk and say, look at this milk. It's such a wicked sinner. It's, you know, at the bar every Friday night. You know. Okay, that's not what going bad means. It, it just means it's, it's of no value. You can't drink it. One, there's coming a judgment called the judgment seat of Christ where every believer will stand and will be judged whether the things done in our body were good of value or bad of no value. Not your sin. Look, the Bible says that our sin, we have been separated from our sins as far as the east is from the west. The Bible says that God has forgotten our sins. He can't remember them. He's never going to bring them up to us. You're not going to be judged for your sins, but you will be judged for what you did in this, on, on this earth with your body with your resources, with the things that God has given you. God wants to know, what are you going to do with them? Have you done something good or bad? Now, here's what you're going to understand. We're not expected to bring the same. The five-talent guy and the two-talent guy, they, they brought different amounts. Go, go back to Matthew 25. Keep, keep your finger there in First Corinthians. We're coming back to it. Go to Matthew 25. Look at verse 20. We can do this quickly. Matthew 25. Look at verse 20. You got to understand, you are not expected to bring the same amount as someone else. 
I thank God for other men who preach and have talent and have ability and have minds and, and things that they can do that I don't have the ability to do. But you know what I also thank God for? I don't have to bring to God the same things that they do. I only have to bring to God what he has given me the ability to do. Matthew 25, look at verse 20. And he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. Verse 21. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Now notice verse 22. And he also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. Now, did the two-talent guy bring back as much as the ten-talent guy? No, he did not. The five-talent guy comes back with five more talents. The two-talent guy comes back with two more talents. But notice the response by his Lord. Verse 23, His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee rule over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Notice the exact same terminology used for both. Here's the point. You bring to God what you can bring to God, and God will pay you. God will reward you in the same way. Because you just have to do what you're able to do with the resources that God has given you. But here's what you need to understand. Look at verse 24. We are expected to bring something. Look at verse 24. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, now notice what he says, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant. Notice what God calls him. Slothful. You know what that word means? Lazy. He says, You are wicked and lazy. I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't want to get to heaven. And at the judgment seat of Christ, you know, there goes brother so-and-so, enter thou into the joy of the Lord. There goes sister so-and-so, enter thou into the joy of the Lord. And then here I come and God says, You are wicked and lazy. You are slothful. See, some of you say, well, I don't really care if I get any rewards in heaven as long as I'm there. You really want to get to heaven and have Jesus look at you and say, you are lazy. You're a sloth. I'm embarrassed of you. <laughs> I mean, look what he says. Verse 26, His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to take my money to, to the exchanges and then at my coming, I should have received mine own with usury. He said, why did you dig a hole and hide it? Why didn't you at least take it to the bank and I could have got some interest off of it? Now, here's what's interesting. The five-talent guy and the two-talent guy, if you count, they, they, they spoke to the Lord in verses 20 and 22. If you, if you count the words that they said to the Lord, they both said 16 words to the Lord. But the one-talent guy in verses 24 and 25 said 43 words. Here's what's interesting. The guy that did the least talked the most. That's just kind of an interesting thought. You know what I've noticed as a pastor? The guy that talks the most usually does the least. <laughs> whenever, and I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings, but whenever, whenever, you know, a visitor shows up and they're like, you know, thanks for coming. And they're just like, oh, yeah. You know, at first you're just kind of like, ah, oh, you know, I wonder what they thought. But you know, usually the people that are quiet are the ones that come back. You know who doesn't come back? Uh, a few weeks ago, we, uh, 
or I don't I guess it was more than a few weeks ago, but a few weeks ago I preached a sermon about serving. Do you guys remember that sermon? About serving and we gave out cards and you filled out things. Well, a week before that we had a first time visitor here. And I met, you know, I met them at the back and I said, oh, thanks for coming. Thanks for being with us. And he was just like, I love this, sir. I love the sermon. I love the church. I love everything about this place. I'm like, oh, well, praise the Lord. He said, no, no, you don't understand. I'm retired. Man, I can come and I can help with anything you need. I mean, you, you, if you have anything for me to do, I can do it. Just tell me. I said, well, actually, you know, next week I'm going to be dealing with a sermon about serving you. It would be good for you. I'm going to be here, man. I'm going to sign up for you. You better believe I'm going to. As soon as he walked up the door, I thought to myself, I'm never going to see that guy again. And you know what? I've never seen that guy again. I remember a couple years ago when we were in the house, we had this guy come to the church. And when we were in the house, I used to preach in a corner, and there was an American flag there, and I got them preaching. And that guy, he comes up to me after service. That was the greatest sermon I've ever heard. I mean, I was just watching you and that American flag behind you, and I just felt like the glory of the Lord was shining all around you. I love this church. I'm going to be here till the day I die. And I was like, man, that's exciting. Never saw that guy again. <laughs> but, you know, people, they just kind of show up, and they're just kind of like, usually those are the ones that are going to stick around. Because usually the guy that talks a lot doesn't do a lot. You got to be careful going around talking a lot about all the things you're going to do for God. Just get to work. The guy, you know, 43 words. Talked the most, didn't do nothing. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, look at verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 3, 12. I, notice this. Just, I want you to understand this reckoning day. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 3, 12. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. Now, here's what you got to understand, okay? God has given you certain talents. God has given you certain resources. You may have money. You may have ability. You may have a mind that's sharp. There's something about you that God uniquely gifted you with. Now, you can use those resources in your life. In fact, you will use those resources in your life for either God or yourself or the world. Now, understand this. There's nothing wrong if God gave you a great ability. God gave you a sharp mind. There's nothing wrong with you going out and starting a business and making tons of money. There's nothing wrong with you getting promoted at your job. There's nothing wrong with with, with you using that for, for the things of this world, you know, for your resources. Hey, God gave you those resources. But here's what you got to understand. There are two types of works that we do in our lives. We do the secular work and we do the spiritual work. Now, the secular work, there's nothing wrong with it. But here's how God describes it. Now, if any man built upon this foundation, notice, gold, silver, precious stones. Those are the spiritual things. Those are, I got someone saved. Those are, I'm discipling someone. Those are, I'm encouraging someone. Those are, I'm, I'm serving at the church, and it's, it, it has eternal value. Gold, silver, precious stone. But then, there's wood, hay, and stubble. Now look, there's nothing wrong with wood, hay, and stubble. Wood, hay, and stubble are great, but they're just temporary. Now notice verse 13. And I don't believe that this is exactly how the judgment seat of Christ is going to go, but he's using this terminology to explain to us what's going to happen. Verse 13. Every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare. So your work is going to be manifest. We're going to be able to see how you spent your life. For the day shall declare. Because it shall be revealed, notice, by fire. Do you see that? 
And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort, what kind it was. So here's what's going to happen. We're going to get to the judgment of Christ. God is going to open up a file that's got your name on it. He's going to pull out that file. Everything you ever did in this life. Every time you got someone saved. Every time you helped serve at the church. Every time you witnessed to someone. Every time you gave an encouraging word to someone that helped them grow spiritually. Everything you did spiritually, he's going to pull out of there. And it's gold, silver, precious stones. But at the same time, he's going to pull out everything you've done that, that was just not bad. Just, you know, you, know you, you coach peewee football, and you help with the barbecue at wherever, and you did this, and you did that, and, you, and, you, and it's all these great things. You built a great business, you had a great job, you did all these things, but it's just, there's nothing wrong with it, it's just wood, hay, and stubble. And by the way, we all do wood, hay, and stubble, we all do, you know, or we should all do, uh, gold, silver, and precious stones. And here's what he's going to do, he's going to take all that, and he's going to set a fire on it, and he's going to let it burn. And here's what happens with wood and hay and stubble. When you put it to fire, it turns to ashes. And here's what happens with gold, silver, and precious stone. It's, it remains. Now notice verse 13. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort, what kind it is. If any man's work abide with he... Uh, abide which he hath built there, uh, thereupon, notice, he shall receive a reward. So once the fire is done, whatever, based on whatever is left over, you're going to get rewarded for that. Enter down to the joy of the Lord. But notice, verse 15, if any man's work shall be burned, if there, there's a guy there and everything gets burned. It turns out they had no gold, silver, precious stone. All they had was wood, hay, and stubble. Everything got burned up. Notice, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. So are you saved based on your works? No. They're still saved, even if they did absolutely nothing. That's our Romans 4 guy, right? But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth in God, his faith is counted for righteousness. This guy did no works. They did nothing for God. Everything they did was temporal. It was wood, hay, stubble. It got burnt up, and in the fire it disappeared. He shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yes, so as by fire. Matthew 25. Look, go back to Matthew 25. What's, what's the idea? The idea is this. You have been given resources in your life. You have abilities. You have money. You have things that God, time that God has given you, resources that God has given you. And our job is to steward those resources. The word steward means to manage. You are to ma- You got to understand this. Everything you have came from God. Nothing is yours. God gave it to you to steward it. And then he's going to come back and he's going to say, okay, what did you do with what I gave you? And he's going to judge you based on that. Now, understand this. God is an investor. He gives those, he gives to those who he can count on. Look at verse 28. Take therefore the talent from him and give it unto him which hath ten talents. Say, well, that's not fair. You take from the one, the guy that has one, give it to ten. Well, the guy that has one, I, God says, I can't trust him. I'll give it to the guy that has sense. Because here's the thing. You've got to understand this. God is an investor. God wants to invest into someone that he knows he's going to get a return on his investment. Verse 29. For unto everyone that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away, even that which he hath. And cast ye the, notice, unprofitable servant. 
into outer darkness there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know about you, but do you really want to be called by your employer? You know, you are the most unprofitable employee that I have. <laughs> I mean, you bring me no profit. Look, that's not what you want to be called by your secular boss. Why would you want your heavenly father, your Lord, to say you are unprofitable? We got one minute. Let's just run, let's run these verses real quick. Go to, go to Luke chapter 12. Matthew, Mark, Luke. We'll, we'll do it fast. We'll be done. Luke chapter 12. Let me give some advice to some of you. People come to me all the time. And look, I, I'm, I'm great with it. I, I love it. I'm a pastor. That's what I'm supposed to do. People come to me and say, Pastor, you know, I'm just struggling financially. Let me give you some advice. Whatever you want more of, learn to steward that to the best of your ability. Because God gives more to people of whatever they steward well. You know why you're broke? Because God can't trust you with money. Because every time you have money in your, in your pocket, it you know, burns a hole through your pocket. Because you're in debt. Because you're lousy at budgeting. Because you have no idea how to deal with money. And, and if you learn to steward that money and say, I'm going to use this money to, yeah, advance, you know, take care of myself and take care of my family. But I'm also going to use this money to advance the work of God, to help the kingdom of God. Hey, God says, I see how you deal with money, so I'm going to give you more of it. And look, it's not just money. You say, my health is poor. Start working out. You say, well, it's not, that's not the issue. Hey, you steward your health well, God will give you better health. Whatever you steward well, God will give you better of it. Say, I, 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 I can't get my wife on board to having a better marriage. You be a better husband. God will give you a better wife. God will help you. Here's what I'm saying. God will you steward what God is giving you. Are you there in Luke chapter 12? Look at verse 48. But he that, that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes, she shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto, notice, for unto whomsoever much is given, of him, much shall, uh, of him shall be much required. That's why, that's why the five guys, the five talent guy had to produce five talents. Why? Because he was given much. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Look at Luke 16. Look at verse 10. Luke 16, verse 10. You say, I wish I had more time to accomplish things. Re- steward your time better. I, I, w- I, I wish I had whatever it is you had. You, you wish you had more of. God will give you more if you steward it better. Luke 16, look at verse 10. Luke 16, verse 10. Luke 16, verse 10. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon. Mammon is talking about money, material goods. He said, ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon. Who will commit to you, or who will commit to your trust true riches? Here's the idea. Whatever you want more. You want your business, listen to me, those of you that have business. We have like eight or twelve people in our church that run business. You want your business to succeed? You be the best steward of the business that God has given you. But you roll out of bed at 9 a.m. and you're not working and you're just sitting around doing nothing. And then you say, why doesn't God bless my business? You know, you know, what I had to learn is if I want Verity Baptist Church to grow, which I do, if I want Verity Baptist Church to grow, you know, we started last year averaging 70, 75 in attendance. Uh, we started the year. We're going to end this year averaging around 100, you know, and, and, and if I want the church to grow next year even more than that, hey, I have to learn to steward you better, to steward my time better, to steward my study time better, to, to devote myself even more with what God has given me. Because when you have the least, then he'll reward you with more. 
And if you want more, then get good at stewarding what he's given you. Because here's what God will do. He'll take from that one guy, that slothful guy that has one talent, and he'll give it to you if he can trust you. Go back to Matthew 25. Look at verse 18. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth. I just want to highlight this for you. And hid his Lord's money. You see that he hid the money? You don't have to turn there because we need to just be done. Second Corinthians 4.3 says this. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Here's a question that I have for you. God has given you resources. I don't know what he gave you, but God has given you resources. Some of you is money. Some of you is time. Some of you is just ability. Some of you, there, there are things that God has given you, and you can use those in your life to get ahead, and, and you ought to do that, and praise the Lord for that. But let me ask you something. The things that God has given you, are you stewarding those things for the furthering of the gospel? Because at the end of the day, that's all that really matters. And at the end of the day, that's all that's going to last for eternity. And at the end of the day, that's what you will be judged for. You will be judged. Is it wood, hay, and stubble? Or is it silver, gold, precious stones? How are you stewarding the resources that God has given you for the furtherance of the gospel? Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father.